0: Stories Bigger Than Texas, The Alamo Podcast. The Siege of the Alamo. Santa Ana and his troops have arrived in San Antonio with plans to take back the town and end the Texas Revolution once and for all. But at the Alamo, William Barrett Travis has a small band of soldiers and volunteers defending the key stronghold. Today, we reveal what happened in between the barrage of cannon fire, who answered Travis's calls for help and how the Alamo became hopelessly outnumbered as its defenders faced down the reality of war when victory or death become all that's left? I'm your host, Emily Balkum. Here to take us through the Siege of the Alamo is Colby Lanham, the Alamo Senior Researcher and Historian. Thanks for being here, Colby.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be here again. This is exciting.
0: The siege begins February 23rd, 1836, when Santa Ana and 1,500 men arrive in San Antonio.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, we're picking up right after, you know, where we left off, where the Mexican Army's marching northward, you know, and, and um, I think we talked about the misery that they endured. They get into San Antonio on February 23rd, and they immediately begin, uh, take they take over the town without firing a single shot, which is something to think about, you know, the Texans fought very bravely for that for five days in December of 1835, and for them to just give it up like that, it had to be a, a blow to the morale, if you will. So, yeah, the Mexican Army comes right into town, and they set up shop.
0: The Alamo has just 150 men at this point, 18 serviceable cannons, plus three more just on the ground.
1: Yeah, as we mentioned in other podcasts, the uh, artillery or, uh, almost all the artillery in Texas is in some state of disrepair. And uh, there are three cannon tubes, the actual um, portion, the metal portion that fires a projectile that are actually laying on the ground for lack of carriages.
0: If you come to the Alamo today, you can see the 18-pounder cannon exhibit. What does that represent back during the siege?
1: The 18 pounder um, at this time is, there's only one other cannon this size in the entire state of Texas, and it's down on the coast. Um, so you're looking at the largest cannon that's in Texas, at least by uh, the size of the projectile. And so um, it's, a, it's a very uh, big deal. The Texans fought hard to get it here. Stephen F. Austin works very hard to get it here. And for the Texans, it's kind of a symbol of the garrison.
0: And on February 23rd, what happens with that cannon?
1: So uh, this is a very um, interesting scenario. The Texans find themselves in the Mexican army comes into town. The Texans see this. They're held up inside the Alamo and there's a shot fired. And we don't know which came first. The flag goes up and then a shot is fired or if a shot is fired, then the flag goes up. But a red flag of no quarter is raised. To show the Texans that even if they were to give up their arms, they're still going to be put to the sword.
0: That red flag raised by Santa Ana and his men at San Fernando Cathedral.
1: That's correct. Yeah, um, for those of you who haven't been to San Antonio, uh, first off, you need to come and see our new collection center. But if uh, you hadn't been to San Antonio, San Fernando is about eight and a half blocks. That's about 800 yards away from the Alamo. So it's very clear what's happening. The Texans could see that flag flying over the cathedral.
0: Day one of the siege. There are people here in non-combat roles, like women and children and slaves. What is daily life like for them? And is
1: it too late for them to leave? Uh, there's a. It's a cognitive. It's actual choice. I mean, they they are, um the women and children that come in here choose to come in here for the most part. Um, you've got women who want to stick with their husbands to make sure that they're cared for. And they don't really know exactly what's going to happen to them if they're caught by the Mexican army. There's a lot of demonization of the Mexican army. Obviously, there's a lot of propaganda during, during this period uh, to demonize the Mexican army and, and uh, kind of portray them as animals, really. And, and they weren't, not to a man. Uh, there's always going to be that in, an, in a military of any size. But uh, there are some depredations and, and things that happen down uh, south, and those rumors spread north. And so the women and children, just to be safe, come with their um, their families inside of the garrison.
0: What is a siege exactly when we're talking about the siege of the Alamo? How many times are cannon shots fired?
1: Yeah, so a siege in this sense militarily is a full encirclement of uh, a fort or garrison. So while the Texans are safe inside, a relative safety uh, inside of the Alamo fort, with its high walls that are very thick and somewhat impervious to artillery fire, they are surrounded. The Mexican army is doing what we call a full envelopment of the surrounding area using cavalry and uh, artillery to uh, basically keep them inside that position. And so while the Texans are somewhat safe, they are in a very precarious situation.
0: Day two of the siege, February 24th. This is the day William Barrett Travis writes the letter history now remembers as the Travis letter.
1: Yeah, so this letter has become very important, and a big part of who we are as Texans in the Alamo story. And, and um, that letter is one of many that Travis writes, but this one gets a lot of attention, and it is a true plea for help. Not just Texans, but all Americans in the world come to our aid. And it's sent throughout Texas, and uh, there's kind of a myth that goes along with this, is that the only men that were uh, that actually answered Travis's call are the 32 men from Gonzales. Yes, those men show up. Yes, those men are patriots. They're a very brave thing to do to come inside the garrison. But the letter does make its rounds, but you have to remember how information is spread during that period. And while people hear about it, it takes time to muster soldiers together, and a lot of them end up in uh, towns like Gonzales, and they're getting ready to come. And as they start, you know, making the move toward the Alamo, they find out it's already fallen. So it takes several days for that, that news to spread.
0: Travis is in an interesting situation. Day two of the siege, he's already commanding the regular army, but now he also has to lead the volunteers as well.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, if you look at uh, Hollywood and how it's portrayed, uh, they portrayed Travis in the past. He's not well liked, and it's not really the case. What, what you've got here is that you have volunteers who don't necessarily want to follow a uh, full fledged member of the Texian army. So it's not that Travis is disliked; it's that they're they're apprehensive about that. Um But he does become the sole commander of the fort, and um, he has a big a big uh, job uh, as a twenty six year old lawyer you know um, these men are trying to fill uh, some very big shoes.
0: The Travis letter is not lengthy, but he chooses his words carefully and passionately.
1: yeah, this is one of the things I tell people when they come visit our site it's often that we look at people back then based off of our education as Americans today and uh, the technology we have that we like to look at these people. And, and kind of look down on them and assume that they are not educated. But you've got men like Travis, you've got men like Bowie who speak several languages, and uh, the letter is really eloquent. It's poetic in its, in its prose, and it does cause a stir. People in the United States end up seeing that, and it is too late for them to get here, but they do end up joining the Texian Army. So it's a really big deal.
0: We do want to remind our listeners you can see the letter in person right now through March 24th at the Alamo. It is on loan from the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. Moving now to day three of the siege, February 25th, there's a skirmish involving huts along the wall of the southwest corner of the compound.
1: Yeah, it's important for the listeners to realize that during this time period, people still lived near the Alamo. They lived in huts around the Alamo and they lived in the town proper. These huts would be abandoned. The people of San Antonio are no strangers to battles. They've lived through many of them. And so when they get word of what's happening, a lot of them flee and those houses become empty and thus become uh, emplacements for soldiers to hide behind to uh, fire upon the garrison.
0: Also on day three of the siege, Travis sends once again with another plea for reinforcements.
1: Yeah, so Travis is becoming more and more desperate uh, as the days go by. He, he is hoping for a long siege that will be relieved by a portion of Texans who, who come to his aid. You know, we know now, obviously hindsight, uh, that it's going to last 12 days, but Travis doesn't know that. So he's taking every opportunity he can to try and get help to relieve the garrison.
0: Another interesting note about day three of the siege, it's Gregorio Esparza's birthday. All of this is happening, but we still have birthdays.
1: Yeah, you, this is the human side of it, right? These people are still human beings. Um, they celebrated their birthdays. They celebrate Christmas, you know, uh, during the uh, after the, the Battle of Bihar. This is the human side of it that sometimes we neglect when we talk about the Alamo story. This man had a birthday, and, and several other defenders also celebrate their birthdays. Day four of the siege,
0: February twenty-six. Travis's calls for reinforcements have concerned Texas, particularly people in Goliad.
1: Yeah, these calls going out uh, asking for help. There's not a lot of men that have mustered. You know, there's that. There's kind of a myth that goes along that Travis's men and Travis and Bowie are holding out at the Alamo so that Houston can gather time to to bring this army together. Well, when the Alamo falls, Houston has just a handful of men with him. But the minute Goliad under Fannin would be. One of the only places that could really come to Travis's aid,
0: he has about three hundred men there, and they're trying to get to the Alamo.
1: Yeah, James Walker Fannin, um, he is one of the uh, individuals of the Revolution that gets a lot of criticism. Part of it is just, uh, but I think a large part of it is ill placed. He's being pushed and pulled with orders. He gets several letters even one day telling him to do different things. He does try to come and relieve the Alamo. It's only a ninety-mile ride from Goliad at Presidio La Bahia. But as they move, they have the same issues you would have had trying to move artillery. The wagons break down, you know, the animals might not be in good health, and so they're forced to turn around.
0: Day five of the siege, February 27th Mexican troops cut off water to the acequia.
1: Yeah, so how do you, uh, what's one way you can possibly get a, uh, an entrenched enemy to capitulate? Well, cut off their water supply, and as Many of you probably already know that water is the key to Texas. What's well, also the key to this scenario. You have to have water. Luckily for the Texans, there is a well within the Alamo, and there's also an effort to dig a second well. The water table in the downtown area is about 16 feet, so if they can dig down 16 feet, there's a good chance they'll find uh, drinkable water.
0: Santa Ana, by day five of the siege, he knows he has reinforcements on the way. He writes to his second-in-command to update him. And says he plans to take the Alamo and then move east.
1: When we read about this fight in the Mexican army and we look at the numbers, you know, that's really what battles are. they are number numbers games in a lot of ways. And when people see that the Mexican army had 6,500 men, they assume they're all in one spot. thats It's almost impossible at this time to do that because they have to come up in waves in order to um, have a viable force. Those men, as Napoleon said, they live on their stomach. So you have to have enough supplies to outfit all the men and enough food for them. So they come in waves. And so what Santana is doing is using um, a good chain of command uh, to let a second in charge for know what's happening to prepare him.
0: Day six of the siege, February 28th, more cannon fire, but the Texans have not yet lost anyone to it. The siege is really a form of psychological warfare. How are people inside the Alamo walls spending their time?
1: You know, it truly is. And and um, we look at it today knowing what the end result is going to be. I would have to imagine the garrison is, um, you know, they're sending out these letters and police for help and they're getting responses back. So there might be a little bit of an upbeat tempo inside the fort. They're still required to take care of their animals inside of the fort, clean their weapons, uh, and they're reinforcing the walls. And I know you spoke about the women and children earlier. They're helping with all of that. The women and children are not sitting idly by while that happens. And so they have essentially become members of the garrison themselves. And so getting water, getting that, the well, new well dug, those are all very important tasks. And that's probably how they're spending a lot of their time.
0: What about the Mexican soldiers in between the cannon shots? Are they just waiting for orders?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, they're a proper military force. So um, they would be also training. A lot of the men that um, that are here in the Mexican armies, you got to remember that some of them are conscripts. And so those conscripts, they need training on weapons. And the Mexican army is doing the same thing. They're making sure that their guns are in good working order, that their horses are fed. We know about that through the grass fight, which is where um, a number of animals are found out on the frontier and buoying them, attack it, thinking there's going to be the payroll, the gold. Well, there's not. There's feed for the horses. That's in the Battle of Behar. And so they're making sure that all their stuff is in good order because at any moment they could get orders from Santana to move forward.
0: Just a waiting game on yeah, both sides. Much.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, in the military we have a term called hurry up and wait. And so that's very much what's happening here.
0: Day seven of the siege, February 29th, 1836 was a leap year, just like this year, 2024.
1: On this day, Santana receives word that Fannin is is moving toward uh, the Alamo to try and relieve it. Um, So he does break off a portion of his army and tell them to head that way, try to capture Fannin, not knowing that Fannin's wagons already broke down and they'd already returned back to La Bahia.
0: And there is a little bit of confusion in the historical record that Santa Ana and Travis may have arranged a temporary agreement to allow townspeople trapped in the Alamo to leave.
1: There are several sources that point toward that, that there is a ceasefire to allow civilians to escape. I mentioned the demonizing of the Mexican army. Well, it happens too. The Texans are called pirates and things of that nature. A lot of propaganda going back and forth, but it's very obvious that the Mexican army is not here to hurt women and children and neither are the Texans. So trying to get those civilians out is important. It's also important to note that even during that time, while some of them left, there's a lot of women and children who chose to stay anyway. And by that point, you have to know the writing on the wall. And so um, a very brave thing for them to do.
0: And they may not have had anywhere else to go. That's
1: true. Yeah, that's a good
0: point. Day eight of the siege, March 1st. Travis's pleas for reinforcement are answered by 32 men from Gonzales who ride through enemy lines. Who were these men, the Immortal 32?
1: Uh, the Immortal 32 are... Actually, the uh, overwhelming male population of the town of Gonzales, which was a very small town at the time, I don't know the exact number, but there are only a handful of families there. And if you imagine, let's say there's only 40 to 50 families and 32 men show up, uh, that's a big portion of that town. Among them is going to be the youngest Alamo defender, William P. King. And uh, he takes his father's place. He's a 15-year-old kid. Today we call him a kid. He's a man back then. But he takes his place. His father had a wife and three, um, I think three daughters to take care of. And so William goes and fights in this place.
0: The group also includes John W. Smith, who acts as a guide.
1: Yeah, so John W. Smith is a courier, um, a very brave thing to do, weaving it out of the Mexican Army lines to try and get help. Uh, These couriers, you you look at it and you say, well, some of them survive, like Samuel Maverick, you know, and, and others. Okay, they do, but they're risking their lives by leaving the garrison. They're leaving the relative safety of those walls to go and try and get help.
0: And a bit of a side note, a document from John W. Smith is actually the first artifact in Phil Collins' collection.
1: That's right. Yeah, it's a saddle receipt. It's one of the first things he ever uh, receives, and that kind of starts his collecting, uh, starts his collection.
0: On display right now in the documents room at the Ralston Family Collection Center. Also on day eight, a cold front arrives. Temperatures are hovering around freezing.
1: Yeah, this is very typical. If you've ever been down in South Texas, the, the weather is going to um, kind of undulate, you know. So it goes, you have a high and you have a low. They, it dips and you just never really know what the temperature is going to do. We know through a diary by a man by the name of William Fairfax Gray that when the Alamo falls, he says it's a nice day and it's shirt sleeve weather. So apparently a cold front rolls in. It's very chilly. And then by the, you know by the next or the following days, it's warmed up a little bit. Um, so the men, you know, if you didn't have a coat, you kind of just hold it out and hope the temperature rises again.
0: Day nine of the siege, March 2nd, a day we now remember as Texas Independence Day.
1: Yeah, it's a very big deal. Um, and, and this is another one of the things that isn't really talked about all that much. But there was a, a little bit of a myth um, or a legend that the Texians didn't know that, te- that um, Texas had declared its independence we know that to be false. Um, we know that Travis says, let's, um, and I'll read this, let the convention go and make a declaration of independence. And we will then understand, and the world will understand that we will, uh, what we are fighting for. If independence is not declared, I shall lay down my arms. And so will the men under my command. So Travis sends two men, Jesse Badgett and Samuel Maverick to the convention. And they vote in favor. Um, now they don't realize, and they probably never know that it's been declared. And, and of course, they'll never know that it's uh, achieved.
0: What does that Declaration of Independence written at Washington on the Brazos say?
1: You know, up to this point, there had been a movement to simply get Santana out of power and reinstate the 1824 Constitution. People wanted their rights back, and Texas did not want to be part of its neighboring state, Coahuila. It wanted to just be Texas by itself, part of Mexico, the northern northern state. This new Declaration of Independence is basically saying that we want autonomy, we want freedom, and uh, we're willing to fight for that.
0: March 2nd also happens to be Sam Houston's birthday, to your point. Regular life goes on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and um, I often wondered how Sam Houston felt about that. I, I don't know if there's a record that exists that talks about it, but that had to have been a pretty neat thing for him.
0: Day 10 of the siege, March 3rd. Travis sends his last round of letters from the Alamo. What did they say?
1: They're basically, again, a plea for help, but one of them uh, does go to a friend of his talking about uh, taking care of Travis's young son that is very poignant and it really does drive home a point of he sees the writing on the wall. They know what's going to happen. And uh, the men have uh, said in different letters, um, like James Bowie, I'd rather die in the ditches of the Alamo than give it up to the enemy. So that's what they're going to do.
0: He also writes to the convention president saying he still hopes for help, but if none comes, he will do the best he can.
1: That's exactly right. Travis talks about in the Travis letter, uh, you know, doing his soldierly duty, doing what is, is asked of him as a soldier. And he's willing to die if that's the case.
0: Also on March 3rd, James Butler Bonham returns to the Alamo.
1: Yeah. So James Butler Bonham leaves a a number of times to try and get help and returns back with a letter. And it's basically saying, hold out, that help is coming. Unfortunately, that help never arrives for the garrison.
0: We know that, but for them, it might be a beacon of hope.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So this, this maybe brings a, a huge boost to morale within the garrison.
0: Meantime, on March 3rd, 1,100 Mexican soldiers arrived, bringing the total to 2,500. That's more than a 10 to 1 ratio.
1: Yeah, and and again, to remember that the Alamo, it's hard to see it today, um, but if you removed all the buildings in the downtown area between San Fernando Cathedral and the Alamo, what you would see is that the Alamo is kind of a city on a hill. and It sits about um, 16 feet higher than San Fernando. So for the Texans, they're up on the walls mm-hmm. looking for possible reinforcements they are men who would be trying to ride into the garrison and they're watching these mexican soldiers pour into the town and it has to be a little bit disheartening
0: day 11 of the siege march 4th the texas side is mostly quiet but the mexican side is gearing up
1: yeah so again the texans are watching all of this happen they know something's taking place there's no way that the mexican army is making all these movements getting artillery ready getting their men ready without the texans taking notice of, note of that
0: Santa Ana calls his officers together for a council of war at the Mexican army headquarters at San Fernando. What do they talk about?
1: So they're talking about um, how to attack, where to attack and, and basically how that's going to unfold. And it isn't until March 5th that they really issue battle orders, which we have a copy. Day here.
0: 12 of the siege, March 5th.
1: Um, and those orders are very specific. And he says the men will be outfitted with this many rounds of ammunition. They will wear shoes, not sandals. They were, uh, will discard anything that's flashy, uh, that will flash to the enemy or make noise. And uh, they're to carry their um, bayonets with their muskets.
0: As you noted, those battle orders are in the Alamo collection.
1: Yeah, so we, we actually own a copy um, or, an, or an original copy of the Santana battle orders.
0: He calls for the battle to begin at four o'clock the next morning and expects every man to do his duty in a day of glory.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. You know, 4 a.m. is a very, um, that's very, very early in the morning. The thing about that too is if you're getting these orders at like 11 o'clock at night and you're getting up at four, you're not sleeping. Uh, Those men are going to be wired up, especially for the cavalry. He orders the cavalry to start doing cavalry screens, which is basically riding back and forth point to point to make sure that no one's let in or let out of that area they have encircled.
0: Legend states that March 5th, day 12 of the siege, that's when Travis drew the line in the sand.
1: Yeah, this this is a very interesting story that a lot of Texans know. I would not put it in a category of myth. I would put it in legend, just as you said. We have some evidence that this took place. We have some evidence that suggests it didn't happen. What we do know is if he didn't draw a saber and drag a line in, in the sand, he almost absolutely had a talk with his men and told them the situation they were facing and asked them to stay. And th- there was nothing stopping any of the men from hopping over the wall in the middle of the night. Travis wasn't out there taking a head count. And so the fact that the men stay, it's, that's very, very impressive.
0: But we'll never know if he actually drew that line. In that's the sand. correct.
1: Yeah. That falls into that legend category.
0: March 5th, the final night of the siege, it's a quiet night. It's the first night Mexican troops did not bombard the Alamo with cannon fire. Is the only thing worse than cannon fire, the silence?
1: You know, I would have to imagine that is very eerie and it probably put a lot of the men on edge. But if you imagine being shelled, twenty, so basically, you know, you're being shelled constantly. And Travis mentions that we've sustained a continual bombardment one night, you know, you're ready for that and nothing happens, you're probably going to fall into a deep sleep. So the first time in 12 days that you really get any at all. And so that may have been what happened with the garrison.
0: Colby Lanham, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Join us next week as we explore the Battle of the Alamo. That episode will be released a day earlier than usual on Wednesday, March 6th, the 188th anniversary of the battle. In the meantime, commemoration is well underway at the Alamo with lots of events planned to remember the siege and the battle. We've linked to all those events in the podcast notes, as well as everything you need to know to plan your visit see Travis's victory or death letter in person while it's here at the Alamo, on loan from the Texas State Library and Archives Commission. You've been listening to Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo podcast.